You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. There's a story that everyone knows about the doctrine of the Trinity. There was this teacher in first century Judea, Jesus of Nazareth, who preached the coming kingdom of God and ended up getting crucified. Then his followers began to declare that he'd been raised from the dead and that he was the Messiah, the Christ of God. As decades passed, these Christ followers, notably the Apostle Paul, came to regard Jesus as ever greater, more elevated, more glorified. At last, the 4th century Council of Nicaea declared Jesus to be fully God, and the following centuries saw the development of the mysterious, incomprehensible doctrine of the Trinity, a masterpiece of arcane speculation and certainly nothing to do with Jesus, a good Jewish monotheist, or Paul, also a good Jewish monotheist. But what if that story is wrong? What if classic Trinitarian language of essence and persons, identity and relations has more to do with Pauline God talk than we'd imagined? Wesley Hill, author of Paul and the Trinity, argues that the latter is something like the case and that close reading Paul with Trinitarian concepts in mind makes better sense of Paul. I'm David Grubbs, your host for this episode of Christian Humanist Profiles, and with us today is Dr. Wesley Hill, Assistant Professor of Biblical Studies at Trinity School for Ministry and author of Paul and the Trinity, Persons, Relations, and the Pauline Letters, published by Erdman's. Welcome to uh, Christian Humanist Profiles, Dr. Hill. David, thank you for having me on the program. It's an honor to be talking with you. Well, likewise, sir. Uh, before we get into the conversation, uh, I, I just noted as I was introducing you that you are, as, as I said, an assistant professor of biblical studies at Trinity School for Ministry, uh, which is in Pennsylvania, mm-hmm. I believe. Uh, mm-hmm. Must one be a Trinitarian theology specialist to teach at the Trinity School for Ministry? <laughs> <laughs> well, one doesn't have to be a Trinitarian theology specialist. Um, as an evangelical seminary in the Anglican tradition, Trinity does uh, expect all of its uh, teaching faculty to affirm uh, the creeds okay. and to teach within uh, confessional uh, Protestant evangelical Anglicanism. So in that sense, we all affirm the doctrine of the Trinity. Uh, not all of us have the joy of teaching it uh, directly. Um, that's, that's one of the pleasures for me of, of being in the Biblical Studies Department at Trinity is, is being able to teach uh, this this doctrine exegetically and theologically, but you know, you're you're quite welcome to be on our faculty without uh, expertise in the doctrine. <laughs> okay, well, as the, uh, the the first faculty member of this particular institution that that I've ever had a personal chance to talk to, I thought the the coincidence was kind of funny. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll get into the book, um, and your first chapter really sets up the. Uh, the argument, the context of your argument, really well, and it led all. It also led me to do some some real rethinking about uh, the the biblical studies field and its its handling, especially of Christology. What do you th- What do you think that much of Pauline studies, in particular, has gotten wrong in its handling of the Father, Son, and Spirit? Well, when I when I started writing this book. Um, I think you already mentioned this, David, that this book began its life as a doctoral dissertation at the University of Durham. Mm, Um, I was working with Francis Watson as my supervisor, who has done a lot in recent years to try to integrate uh, theology, systematic theology, and biblical studies. And so as he and I were having some initial conversations about what what I would be researching, what I'd be writing on, um, we began to talk about the way that New Testament scholarship describes the position of Jesus vis-a-vis mm. God. And um, probably a lot of your listeners will be at least familiar with the, the terminology of high and low Christology. Mm. Um, uh, we, we, we think of someone like um, Bart Ehrman, for instance, who's um, just written uh, a popular book called How Jesus Became God. Mm as someone who's advocating for a lower view of Jesus. Um, Jesus is, is an exalted prophet of Israel, but he's not what was described in the Nicene Creed as, as true God, very God. 
Um, so Airman is working with what New Testament scholars would label a low Christology. Or you uh, think of someone like C.F.B. Mole, uh, the great British New Testament scholar, wrote a, wrote a classic book called The Origins of Christology, and Mole thinks that Jesus is, is, is more elevated than Airman does. Uh, so so we, we typically describe his view as a, as a higher Christology, a high view of Jesus, as opposed to a low view of Jesus. And and what's interesting about this is you can you can sort of trace that language right through uh, various kinds of scholarship, whether someone is more creedally orthodox or whether they're more heterodox in terms of Christian theology. They all are operating with this language of high and low Christology, hmm. and they're sort of plotting their views of Jesus on what I call a vertical axis. Um, the top of that axis would be complete equality, ontological equality with God, um, the, the lower part of that axis would be, no, Jesus is just a particularly exalted human being. He's a representative Israelite or something like that. And you can just go through various New Testament scholars and put them somewhere on that axis. Um, and what, what struck me about that, the more I, I began to read about it and, and think about it, was how non-Trinitarian it is. Hmm. Um, it asks about... The, the role of Jesus, the titles of Jesus, um, the uh, worship of Jesus, but it's not very interested in placing Jesus in a kind of web of relations. Mm. Um, if, you, if you read classic Trinitarian theology, you, you really don't find that language of high and low Christology. You instead are encountering a different sort of linguistic world. It's a, it's a world where relationality and relations predominate. Mm. Um, and I... I just begin to notice the discrepancy between someone like, for instance, the Church Father Basil or Athanasius, uh, where they're they're placing Jesus in this web of relations with the Father and the Spirit, and they're they're plotting his identity, if you like, uh, in 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 that way, mm-hmm. and how different that is from someone like uh, James Dunn or or Bart Ehrman, or even I think Larry Hurtado, um, who are who are working with this vertical axis metaphor. And so my project began by saying, is there something about Trinitarian theology that New Testament scholarship has just forgotten, <laughs> or sidelined, or intentionally ignored? And what, ha- what has been lost in that process? And could we actually gain something by returning to a more relational way of thinking about Jesus, uh, rather than this high versus low paradigm that we've been operating with? Mm-hmm. Okay. So, so that, and and I, I'll just go ahead and say I, I've been something of a junkie for this high versus low uh, Christology uh, argument over the past mm. few years, and um, I've read, uh, you know, a, a number of presentations of of high Christology, and uh, th- that I thought, okay, this is this is excellent. This is the good stuff. Um, which mm. I don't, I don't think mm. that you're questioning. Um, the hmm. height of their Christology so much as that is is it it's it's not enough to just say I'm a monotheist and my Christology is high. There's something more to be said. I think that's right. I, I think that what I'm what I'm interested in asking is does that does that way of plotting things, that way of describing things, high versus low, mm-hmm. does that cause us to overlook what we might describe as more of a mutual relationship between Jesus and the Father, whereby both of them are turned toward one another, as it were. Uh, mm-hmm. they're, they're facing one another, and it's, it's, that, it's that reciprocity, it's that two-way street that actually gives both of them their identities. Um, what I think happens so often in the high and low way of describing things is you start off with an understanding of God. Um, you know, God is the God of Israel. He's He's uh, the only God. He's the sovereign God. And now we have to think about this this Johnny Come Lately, <laughs> this, this new <laughs> character on the scene, Jesus, and we have to figure out where he belongs in relationship to that God that we've already just defined. Mm-hmm. And I, I think the the thing about Paul that that sort of way of describing things misses is that it seems that Paul is just as interested in saying that God has to be defined in relation to Jesus as Jesus has to be defined in relation to God. So there's there's more about traffic going in both directions 
And I think that the high versus low Christology debate is less attuned to that than it than it might be if it operated with a more trinitarian way of 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 grappling with these things. Okay. I know one of the objections that that could potentially be raised probably has been um, that biblical uh, biblical theology, biblical studies, and systematic theology often. Um, there's there's sort of a, a border war <laughs> going on. Yeah. Um, and you're arguing that uh, at the end of your chapter, you, you you turn to Trinitarian theology as a resource for getting Pauline studies mm-hmm. back on track in its discussion of Paul's ways of speaking of God. How is that going? How is that for you a useful move and not an imposition? As I think many would probably right out the gate uh, object to it. Mm-hmm. I think one of the presuppositions of the argument I'm trying to make is that even though the vocabulary of so much Trinitarian theology seems foreign to the New Testament, I mean, think about the language of substance or essence, divine essence and persons, hypostases, mm-hmm. um, uh, real relations, <laughs> to use the term from Aquinas, um, all, all this sort of conceptual apparatus of Trinitarian theology is is not the same, it's not employing the same vocabulary that we find in the New Testament. Mm-hmm. And so I think it strikes a lot of exegetes as something removed from the New Testament. It, it's something that, that came along as a result of Christianity's encounter with Greek philosophy. Mm-hmm. Um, it's shaped by Hellenistic philosophical categories and when we when we go back to the New Testament, we find that, that the world is much more Jewish, much more indebted to the Hebrew Bible, um, even though it, it, the New Testament is largely drawing on the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint. Nonetheless, the, the, the vocabulary is still very much more owing to the Old Testament than it is to um, Christianity's encounter with with philosophy. Mm-hmm. And so, I think a lot of experts are saying if we're if we're interested in reading the Bible historically and trying as best we can to uncover the original historical Paul, um, what what Paul meant in his original context, then Trinitarian theology is not going to help us very much with that task. Um, mm. It's something that grows along in a later era of the faith, and it has its own importance in that later chapter of the Church's life, but as far as getting back to Paul, it's not very helpful. And I think the presupposition that I'm operating with is that that that's too uh, uh, simple a way of, of of looking at things, precisely because the Trinitarian theologies that came along later are exegetical enterprises. They're 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 not um, sort of free floating, free standing theologies. They're they're very much grounded in a reading of Paul. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, if you if you pick up Athanasius's discourses against the Arians, and you and you just read through those discourses, you're going to find a lot of references to Paul. Um, Athanasius is having to develop a new vocabulary, a new way of meeting the challenge of what he thinks is an aberrant theological view, you know, Arius's view. Mm-hmm. But he's doing that by way of an appeal to the Bible. He's he's reading Paul. He's re- he's reading John. Um, he's reading the New Testament, and so what I'm trying to say is, if that's the case, if, if Trinitarian theology is not just something completely separable from the Bible, it's not just the product of, of philosophical reflection, but it's an exegetical enterprise, then we should treat it in some ways like a commentary. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, a commentary is meant to drive us back to the text that it's commenting on. And my, and my argument, or my presupposition, is that Trinitarian theology is something like that. It's something like a commentary. It's an exegetical um, production. Mm-hmm. And so if it's exegetically derived, then it may have some exegetical insights for us. You know, the, 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 the reason we do exegesis is to drive one another back to the text. And so I'm saying that if, if that's what Trinitarian theology is, Mm-hmm. then it's not just something imposed on Paul. It's actually something derived from Paul, and therefore we ought to expect that it can help us read Paul uh, again uh, today. So hopefully that that gets at your question a little bit. No, no, that's excellent. I mean, it, being able to say that 
Uh, Trinitarian theology is not this completely separate thing from biblical studies, but is in fact the, the production of biblical studies in the long conversation. And interacting right. with it is just joining the long conversation. Right. Well, let's get into the meat of your argument. And for me, uh, your second chapter was that this was the moment when I said, okay, this guy's got something new to say. Um, <laughs> I, I've read my Athanasius. I've read my Augustine on the Trinity. I've, you know, I've, I've read this, and and I, I don't think I'd seen the second chapter presented anything like it presented in quite the way that it was. And it all hinges, uh, your argument all hinges on this language that Paul, in Paul, that my eye had just skimmed over. So. Why is Paul's repeated identification of God the Father as the one who raised Jesus from the dead so important to theology proper and not something for one's eye to just skip? Well, in this chapter, I, I sort of had my sights on um, something that E.P. Sanders, the great Pauline scholar E.P. Sanders, said once. Mm -hmm. He said that when you look at Pauline theology, What's distinctive about Paul, what's original with Paul, is not his doctrine of God. It's his understanding of Christology and soteriology. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Sanders gets, that, that, that becomes a kind of a working theory for a lot of New Testament exegetes. Sanders is not the only person to put it that way. And, uh, you know, if you read someone like like James Dunn, his, his wonderful Theology of Paul the Apostle, it's a very good book. I, in some ways, I learned to do Pauline theology by reading that book. But, but Dunn is very clear at the outset that he's operating with a very similar view to Sanders. Um, what makes Paul unique is, is not his understanding of God, because he simply takes over from his Jewish past his understanding of God. God is who God has always been. God is the God of Israel. He's the creator. He's the one who called Abraham and Israel and gave the law. That's who God is for Paul. And mm -hmm. so what, if we, if we want to talk about what makes Paul a, a special case in the first century, uh, we don't need to be talking about his theology proper. We need to instead be talking about his Christologies and his soteriology, his understanding of Gentile inclusion, for instance. Um, and what I was saying in, in my second chapter of my book is that I, I think that's an inadequate answer. I, I don't think Paul believes he has a new God. Mm -hmm. uh, he's very clear that the God he is describing in his letters is, in fact, the creator of the world, the one who did make promises to Abraham, the one who gave the law at Mount Sinai. But what he's saying is that um, he has been given a unique, distinctive insight into the character of that God. Mm precisely by the resurrection. Um, so, so one of the places I go in that chapter is Romans 4, and it's, it's very interesting how Paul does this. At the, at the very end of Romans 4, he's talking about uh, faith being reckoned for righteousness, and he says at the end of the chapter, it will be reckoned to us who believe in him that raised from the dead Jesus our Lord. So that's, that's God he's describing. God is the one who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord. And he says, those of us who are justified by faith, we believe in that one. We believe in the one who raised Jesus from the dead. But if you go, if you go back a few verses earlier in the chapter, he, he, he's retelling the story of Abraham. He's, he's describing what happened to Abraham, and, and, he, and he says at this point um, where Abraham is, is expecting Isaac to be born, the child of promise, um, he says, Abraham believed in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead mm. and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Now, what struck me about that is, is Paul is reflecting on the God of the Old Testament. He's reflecting on the God of Abraham. But suddenly he's using the language of the Christian confession to do so. He's using the language of resurrection. In other words, he's looking at the story of Abraham, and he's looking more specifically at the identity of Abraham's God, Mm -hmm. through the lens of his Christology. Um, his, his understanding of what God has done in Jesus now suddenly illumines the, the character of the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, in a way that, that it had not been for Paul up to that point. So 
that's the, that's the sort of thing I'm trying to do in my chapter two. I'm saying, you know, if you, if you start off by making the assumption, well, Paul has nothing new to say about God. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's Jesus that he wants to say something about. Well, that misses, that misses this sort of dynamic that we see in Romans 4, where it's precisely what Paul says about Jesus that allows him to say something fresh about God. Mm-hmm. God now has new depth that have been disclosed as a result of the Christ event, if you like. And um, I try to show how I think that that means we ought not to simply make the kind of statement that Sanders makes, where Paul has nothing new to say about God. Mm-hmm. I, I really found that uh, really fascinating, especially when you apply it to um, the particular language that that Paul uses to describe what God does in his intervention in Abraham's life um that that Sarah's womb was dead um that uh Abraham himself was was as good as dead so that um the the wonder that's actually being performed in that context is figured as a kind of of resurrection and that uh yeah, that, that that was the real clincher for me, that Paul is now seeing um, the God who raises the dead, and now he's going back and looking at the new t- at the Old Testament and saying, okay, now I understand what sort of God with we've been dealing with the whole time. And he, right. Yeah. This uh, chapter 2, uh, it, I, and I know this is not the done thing, I'm not a biblical studies guy, I'm an English professor, <laughs> um, but I understand it's not the done thing to be supplementing God talk from one book that you're looking at with theologizing from another book. Um, still, in this particular, in this chapter, I kept thinking about Johannine language, about the relation of the mm. Father and the Son, especially the the father can't be known outside of relationship to the son. Mm. Am I stretching your point in this chapter if I see it as an as kind of a sideways argument that the gospel of John's theology isn't necessarily that kind of late sophisticated development that it's often presented as? I think that's right. Um, my my colleague David Yego, who um, one of my Lutheran colleagues at the seminary where I teach, he, he wrote a, an essay several years ago in which he distinguished between theological concepts and theological judgments. Mm-hmm. And um, that, that sort of distinction is not unique to Diego, but the way he applies that to the Trinitarian discussions was fascinating to me. Um, the point he makes is that um, if you read, for instance, Philippians 2, um, you're not going to find any of the language of, of divine essence, divine persons, but you're going to find a kind of pattern of, of theological reasoning that results in the judgment that Jesus is one with the God of Israel. Now, what Yego says is that when you go to Nicaea, when you go to the, the, the Nicene Creed, you're going to see a very similar or indeed identical pattern of judgment but you're going to see different words used, different theological concepts used. Mm-hmm. And what, what I think Diego's essay prompts us to think about is whether uh, the vast gulf between something like Pauline language and Johannine language necessarily includes a vast gulf between theological judgments. Mm-hmm. Uh, in other words, I think Diego allows us to say, okay, we're, we're obviously operating in the realm of different concepts. John really doesn't sound exactly like Paul, and vice versa. And that's something we as historians ought to recognize and care about. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, we should be careful not to allow that dissimilarity to blind us to a kind of underlying unity, uh, that there may be very similar judgments being rendered about the identity of Jesus and the identity of the Father, mm-hmm. uh, even though the, the conceptual registers are, are quite different. And I think that's the way I'd want to approach that. I, I, I do think John is written later in the first century. I think right. it comes well after uh, something like the Epistle of the Romans. But I would want to argue for some profound theological continuity between them. Um, when, when you see the fourth gospel rendering uh, the identity of the Son always and inseparably in relation to the Father, I think that's very much um, on the same trajectory uh, that we see uh, in Paul. Um, so I would I would want to argue for conceptual 
discontinuity between Paul and John, mm-hmm. but cons- uh, judgmental continuity, <laughs> if you like. I, I think there's a deep continuity at the level of theological judgment, even though we, of course, want to acknowledge uh, these two writers are employing very different literary strategies and uh, using very very different vocabularies in order to arrive at, their, at those judgments. Mm. So, so that the 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 kind the theological judgment uh, I'll use uh, the the terms you've introduced here, the theological judgment that uh, the person of the son, knowing the person of the son, and particularly knowing the relation of the son to the father, mm. is a mm. is a necessary part of 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 understanding the identity of the father, of the person of the father, that that's not something that that I should just say, let's sequester that in the Gospel of John, and even then particular chapters in the Gospel of John, um, but rather that's that's potentially a judgment that we could be finding in other places. Um, as in, you know, I, it seems to me, Galatians and Romans and these other, these other places that you point out with the Father being the one who raises Jesus from the dead. That's right. That's right. Um, I think a lot of New Testament scholars are, are understandably nervous about speaking of a single theology of the New Testament, and many mm-hmm. of them are much more comfortable speaking about a plurality of theologies. Mm-hmm. And I would just want to press the question of, uh, you know, certainly there is a plurality of literary renderings of the identity of Jesus. Uh, the mm-hmm. fourth Gospel's rendering of, of, of Jesus uh, doesn't look and sound exactly like Paul. Mm-hmm. But I, I would want to then press the question of, um, does that prevent us from seeking a deeper continuity at the level of theological judgment? Um, mm-hmm. You know, G- Jesus is described as, as, the, as the Logos, uh, who became flesh in John, and, and I would want to see that as in some kind of deep continuity with, uh, for instance, Galatians 4, in which God sends his Son uh, in the fullness of time, and this Son... Uh, is is implied to be pre-existent. Uh, so so there there are those there are those moments of continuity that shouldn't be lost, uh, even as we even as we register the the conceptual differences. Excellent. In your uh, th- your third and your fourth chapters, uh, if your second chapter is mainly dealing with, we don't know the Father except in relationship to the Son. Um, your third and fourth chapters deal. Um, with knowing Jesus in relation to God, knowing the Son in relation to the Father, um, and also adds in, uh, I, th- I think, another couple of, of elements that nuance these ideas, that it's not just necessary mutual relations that, that are constitutive of identity, but also the idea of, of a kind of asymmetrical relation mm-hmm. that also doesn't compromise a unity, a union of identity. So right. now, and these two these two chapters are dense, um, and for me it was uh, occasionally rough going because I don't uh, I only know enough Greek in order to be able to sound out the phonetics. <laughs> um, That's fine. Yeah, I hope you'll have a chance to study more someday. <laughs> uh, well, that that is that is on the bucket list. <laughs> um, <laughs> Great. Well, for the sake of time, uh, I would like to get our uh, listeners to to appreciate the the depth of argument um, for at least one of these passages. Um, first in Philippians, and then uh, then then in the next chapter, you deal with a, a couple of different passages in First Corinthians. But you you can pick which one of these you want to trace uh, the argument through. <laughs> Yeah, happy to. Um, one of the uh, conceptualities of Trinitarian theology that I try to introduce in chapters three and four of the book is this idea of what we might call redoubled discourse or mm-hmm. a doubling of language. And what I what I mean by that, or, or what Trinitarian theology means by that, is that we we really have to speak of each of the three persons of the Trinity: Father, Son, and Spirit in two different ways. Um, The first way, we have to talk about their uh, shared divine essence. We have to talk about their oneness, or their unity, uh, their equality with one another. So so classic Trinitarian theology says that the Father, Son, and Spirit are equal in power, equal in glory, 
holiness, majesty, and so on. But that we also have to add to that uh, the, the second level of distinction. So the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Father, the Father is not the Spirit, the Spirit is not the Son, and, and, and run that all through for all three. Mm-hmm. So there's both um, complete equality of essence, and there is distinction at the level of persons. And, and both of those languages are necessary when we're describing the Holy Trinity. Now, what, what I try to do in chapters 3 and 4 of the book is, is show that, that that kind of distinction has some exegetical payoff. Mm. It actually helps us to engage the text of Scripture. So if you, if you look, for instance, at 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 6, this is, this is a very famous text. Athanasius uses it, Augustine uses it. Uh, it was a real kind of contested site uh, in the Trinitarian controversies, but... Um, the the thing that's remarkable about this text is you find, I think, complete identification between Jesus and the God of Israel, and you find irreducible distinction between Jesus and the God of Israel. You find both of those things, Mm. and it seems to me that neither one of them is compromised. So, for instance, um, if you look at that text, Paul is very obviously drawing on the Shema, Deuteronomy Mm 6.4, you know, this kind of classic creedal affirmation of Israel's faith that a faithful Jew like Paul would have grown up reciting. Um, and, and he says, for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. And, and those terms, God and Lord, are both drawn from the Shema. So, so what, what Paul has done, in effect, is he's, he's split apart the Shema, and he's apportioned uh, part of it for the Father and part of it for Jesus, the Son. And I think what that demonstrates is that Paul thinks of Jesus as belonging within the identity of the one God of, of Jewish faith. Mm-hmm. Now that's remarkable. <laughs> I mean, to say about uh, a first-century Jewish man that he is, in fact, the God who has been acclaimed in the Shema for, for, for centuries, mm-hmm. that's a startling claim, to say the least. Mm-hmm. And I think we need to feel the full weight of that, that Jesus is being identified, he's being included within the unique divine story uh, of, of the God of Israel. Um, Richard Bauckham uh, is very good on this, I think, um, talking about the absolute identification that we see here between the Son and the Father. So mm-hmm. they, are, they are one at the level of their sharing of the divine name. They are both acclaimed uh, as the one whom the Shema is about. But that doesn't mean that their distinction is just erased. Uh, they remain the persons they are. So you have these prepositional phrases, that there's one God from whom are all things, and there's one Lord through whom are all things. So Paul is also taking great care, it seems to me, to say that the Father is in some sense uh, the source of creation, and the Son, Jesus, is in some sense the mediator of creation. So their, mm. their roles in, in the history of, of salvation or the economy of salvation are distinct. They don't overlap. Uh, they, they, they maintain their individual personal uniqueness. And what I try to show in those chapters is that, that holding those two things together is, is the trick of Trinitarian theology. Uh, and that's why I talk about asymmetry. Uh, there's mm. asymmetry at the level of the distinction of the persons. The Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Father. They're, they're facing one another, they're, they're um, complementing one another, mm-hmm. and yet, by the same token, uh, that distinction that they enjoy between one another doesn't compromise their profound identification, their profound unity. And I think that's the, that's the Trinitarian mystery that, that Paul, in his own vocabulary, is, is opening up for us here. And so I think that 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 kind of doubling of language that we see in Trinitarian theology, the shared essence and the, and the distinction of the persons, is grounded in what Paul himself is doing in, in texts like 1 Corinthians 8, 6, and Philippians 2, and, and other places. Uh, so that, that, that's the material that I try to explore in, in those chapters of the book. Yeah, the, those are... The, that was a really, uh, a really interesting 
uh, handling of it for me in particular. Um, and I, I know you, t- you talked about eight, six, but, uh, just, just so our, our listeners know, um, the, in chapter three, Philippians two, six through 11, um, just, uh, a, a passage that has to be talked about when we're, when, when discussing this topic, uh, but also, uh, first Corinthians 15, 24 to 28, which is a, uh, I guess a, a, a favorite text for those who want to argue for a kind of subordination, um, that it's not just an asymmetry of relation, but it's also um, an asymmetry uh, in, even in terms of, of essence, that there, that there isn't a unity there. Um, 1 Corinthians 15, 24 to 28 being cited for that. But um, I, I think your, your, your concept of, of redoublement I kept wanting to pronounce it as if it was a French word. Well, it is. It is originally, yeah. Okay, okay. So I could say <laughs> yeah. redoublement or something like that. That's right. That's oh. right. Yeah. Oh, excellent. Okay. <laughs> Indeed. So I'm not just being Pepe Le Pew in my head. All right. <laughs> no, no, not at all. <laughs> <laughs> excellent. I, I thought that concept worked worked really well, and it was uh, it was actually kind of heartening to to be able to come to the text and say, Hey, these conceptualities that I've I've picked up in other contexts. This is actually, this is actually working to 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 grapple with this text. Yeah. Um. In particular, uh, in uh, well, in the Philippians and in the First Corinthians fifteen, um, I, I I again kept feeling like I was hearing um. Johannine language talking about uh, in, in your discussion of those texts talking about the idea of mutual glory and the the notion mm-hmm. of the son uh, cooperating with the father but this cooperation and mutual glory being balanced by a kind of giving and receiving asymmetry um, as well as a commissioning and obeying asymmetry um, is, is is this you know is this me importing John back into Paul, or uh, would you would you again say yes? They're they're talking to each other now. They're 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 making the same kind of theological judgment. I I, I would, David. Yeah, I would say something very similar uh, to what I was saying earlier. I, I think that um, this probably takes us a little bit too far afield, but one of the things I think that Christian interpreters, uh, in particular, have a stake in exploring is canonical interconnections. Mm. So, you know, whatever whatever the kind of historical origin of these texts, you know, I don't know that we have a definitive evidence that, that the author of the fourth gospel would have would have been reading Paul's letters. Um, I, I think that's perhaps unlikely. But mm. um, I think that as as Christian readers, you know, we're we're interested in the canonical interconnections. Mm. And it seems to me that this would be another instance of a place where uh, we can register uh, the the difference in the conceptual vocabulary that's being used, but we can also register a deep continuity at the level of, of theological judgments, theological um, um, affirmations. Um, and it, it seems that this sort of mutual, uh, the son the son seeking the glory of the father, the the father displaying the son on the cross for for his own glory. Um, that reciprocal movement that we see so beautifully in the in the high priestly prayer of Jesus um, in, in in the latter chapters of John, all of that is I would want to argue on the same trajectory, on the same plane as the material we see in Paul. And obviously the literary strategies are quite different, but mm-hmm. I do think there is um, a, a deep a deep theological um, connection between those. Mm-hmm. I, and this is, I, I know this is, a, as you say, this is further afield because you wrote a book on Paul, not John. Um, but <laughs> uh, I, I'm, I'm excited to, to read this kind of thing because uh, uh, I'm accustomed to biblical studies and systematic theology pulling my canon apart. Yeah. Um, I, I'm accustomed to, to that particular move of, of, you know, of hearing about how these these books are are not in conversation with each other, how they are operating in distinctive mm. ways, and becoming innately suspicious of my attempt to harmonize, as if it's you know I'm necessarily, mm. you know that that's automatically going to be a, a move that's an imposition. Um, 
and I, I, mm. I find it encouraging to to read and approach uh, and hear and hear an approach to the text that's um, that's ma- making it making it possible for for me to uh, maybe not ne- entirely justify all of my interpretations, but at least the initial move is one that's not necessarily running roughshod over the realities of the text. <laughs> mm. Mm. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, I I think we need to shift um to your uh I guess your third major move in your third the third mm-hmm. major movement in this co- in this concert uh which is discussing the spirit um because as you point out in the 5th chapter um it is not enough that we be binitarians I guess. Um we we need the Holy Spirit in in uh, in this conversation as well. So how do you make that mm-hmm. argument? Well, I try to make that argument by um, going to a passage like Romans eight uh, verses nine to eleven, mm-hmm. where Paul is describing, I think, the agency of the Spirit in the resurrection of Jesus, and I try to get into some of the exegetical complications of making that claim, but this is a highly disputed text, and a lot of ink has been filled trying to sort this out. But um, at, at, at the very end of that little unit of text, um, Romans 8, verses 9 to 11, Paul again uses this circumlocution, uh, the one who raised Jesus from the dead, that's referring to uh, God the Father, God the God of Israel. Mm-hmm. Um, but he, he inserts Jesus and the Spirit right in there. So it's a, it's a kind of densely Trinitarian passage, and he says it's the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead. So there they all are. Mm-hmm. The Spirit of Him, that's the Spirit of God the Father, the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus, and there's the Son. So if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, believers, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead, that's the Father, will give life to your mortal bodies also, through his spirit, which dwells in you. So it, it's a complicated thing, untangling what Paul's saying here, but he, he seems to be making an argument about how believers may have the assurance of the future bodily resurrection. Mm-hmm. And it has to do with the fact that the same spirit through whom God raised Jesus will also be the one through whom God will raise believers, and the reason they can have that confidence is because that very Spirit now indwells them. So there's a kind of eschatological thing going on here, uh, mm-hmm. kind of already but not yet. We already possess the indwelling Spirit, which is our guarantee of the promised future that has not yet arrived. But we can also look back and see that future having already arrived in the past, in the case of Jesus himself. Just as Jesus was raised by God the Father through the agency of the Spirit, that becomes the Pauline template for thinking about what will be true of believers in the future. And what I think is noteworthy about that is that Paul is specifying the Spirit in relation to God the Father and Jesus. So he's saying, if you want to know the Spirit, you have to talk about what Kevin Rowe has called the relational determination of the Spirit's identity. Uh, the Spirit is not knowable apart from the Spirit's relation to the one who, who sent the Spirit, God, God and, and, and Christ. But I think, again, we have reciprocity. We have a two-way street. You can't actually know God and Jesus here without making reference to the agency of the Spirit in raising Jesus from the dead and thereby designating him as the risen Son of God in power, as Romans 1 puts it. So, again, the the imagery here suggests to me a web. Um, One strand of the web is the Father's sending of the Spirit, the Father's uh, initiative in raising Jesus, Um, but the other strands of the web are the Son receiving that risen identity from the Father through the Spirit, and the Father thereby being marked out, uh, being picked out of the crowd, as it were, as the one who he is by reference to the Spirit. So, so there's a kind of irreducible complexity here, to use, to use uh, perhaps overly scientific jargon. Um, <laughs> I, I quote, in, in that chapter, I quote Douglas Campbell, who teaches New Testament at Duke Divinity School. He says, the story of Pauline 
soteriology is incomplete without the Spirit. Mm. Um, the the story of, of, of God's identity is not finally describable. It's not specifiable if you don't include reference to the Spirit. And so in this chapter, I'm, I'm pushing back a bit on this fashionable language that you sometimes see that, that Paul was a Benetarian. C.F.D. Mole has said that. Um, Larry Hurtado has said that. Um, Paul, there's a kind of Benetarian view of Jesus and the Father. And what I'm saying is that there are several passages in Paul which it seems to me pressure us to speak not only of Benetarianism, but of, of Trinitarianism. And again, to grant David Yeager's point, it's not, it's not the full Trinitarianism of the fourth century in terms of it doesn't use the language of essence and persons, mm-hmm. but it is nonetheless a full Trinitarianism in its own right. Um, it's, it's theological judgment is in deep continuity with what we see later at the Council of Nicaea. So that's, that's the argument in brief. Mm. Well, the, when you use the, well, use the term of, of irreducible complexity that, um, often, uh, the, and I guess this is what I was getting at in the introduction, to, in the introduction to our episode, um, Trinitarian theology is, uh, described as a kind of gradual sort of, uh, evolutionary process where we can look at different canonical texts and then kind of later patristic text and sort of situate them on this development of the trinity scale as we see it sort of rising from its amoeba form and gradually getting bigger and more complex right um but uh at least uh, as i see you're arguing um it's it seems as if there's more continuity between those creeds not necessarily in their language used but in the kind of uh, in the concepts they're seeking language to describe that there seems to be more of a direct relationship to the New Testament's presentation of God, or at least uh, at least the Pauline one that you're talking about here. Right, right. I, I think that's right. I am trying to argue for more continuity, if you like, between historical theology and New Testament theology than mm. is often uh, done. Right. Which, when I started the book... I thought I was I, I thought I was reading one thing, and then I got to the end of the book, and I realized I had been looking at it up uh, maybe inside out. Um, mm-hmm. I thought that I was being invited to put on later theological glasses in order to read more mm-hmm. carefully a canonical text, but in the end, the thought that I ended with was, no, I'm not putting on later glasses. I'm seeing where the glasses grew from. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if that makes sense. <laughs> exactly, it's a mixed metaphor to that. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a mixed metaphor, but I, I'm, my metaphor is broken today. I, but I thought I thought that was a fascinating move um, to be able to move to, mm-hmm. to move from we're not just we're not just using later theology as a kind of resource. We're actually mm-hmm. discovering where that theology grew from. Um, mm-hmm. We're, we're tracing back the family resemblance, so to speak, if we can get to a genetic metaphor. Right, right, exactly. Excellent. Well, I, I have largely been guiding this conversation so far with my own questions. Um, and on Christian Humanist Profiles, we like to uh, turn over the helm for uh, the last little bit of the conversation to, uh, to our guest. Um, is there anything that we haven't brought up today um, in the book, outside the book, uh, whatever thoughts that might have occurred to you along the way that you'd like to uh, leave our listeners with as we end this episode? Well, thanks for that opportunity. I, I, I say at the end of the book that you know one of my goals, uh, I, I suppose you could talk about a twofold goal, but one of the goals is to uh, convince my fellow New Testament uh, teachers and, and, and scholars, that theology is really worth reading for our discipline. <laughs> mm. I think a lot of us feel that theology is, is sort of irrelevant in many ways. Uh, we're happy to let the theologians make of our own research what they will, but their research doesn't directly impact us. We, we mm. sort of do our, do our exegetical work, and then we hand off the baton 
to theologians and let them run with it. And I'm suggesting to my fellow uh, persons in the New Testament guild that, that we, we, we might want to rethink that whole model, uh, that in fact theology can have something to say to us as we go about our craft of reading the New Testament. But I think I would also want to then turn my attention to, to theologians and say, please don't forget the exegetical roots of your own discipline. Mm. You know, I, I pick up a lot of books of theology, and I think that exegesis lies somewhere in the background, but it's not often described. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not often entered into. Um, theology sometimes operates at one or two removes from the Bible. And I think one of the things I'm doing in this book is I'm pleading with theologians to, in a sense, rediscover the exegetical underpinnings of their own enterprise, their mm-hmm. own craft. And, um, you know, I'm encouraged by people like Robert Jensen, who is a wonderful exception to what I'm describing. If you, if you read Jensen's systematic theology, it's filled with exegesis. <laughs> he, doesn't, he doesn't sort of observe these strict disciplinary boundaries, and he's, he's quite happy to provide his own exegesis of passages. And, he, and he's obviously someone who's well-read in biblical scholarship, and I, I'm, I'm heartened by that. I want to see that kind of thing continue. I just recently read a a book of theology by the Princeton Seminary scholar George Hunsinger, who um, is, is an expert on Karl Barth, and I was very pleased to see a whole chapter on uh, Eucharistic doctrine in First Corinthians. Um, I think this is exactly what I want to be encouraging theologians to pursue, um, not, not to neglect the exegetical dimensions of theology, but to really rediscover those dimensions and begin to practice exegesis in the New Testament for themselves. And um, I think we're already seeing some trends in that direction, and I would want to say, may they continue. <laughs> and I, if my book serves as a, as a prompt for some of that, that would make me very happy. Excellent. Well, may your tribe increase, sir. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure to talk with you, and I, I very much appreciate you having me on the podcast. Well, uh, and thank you to you for uh, uh, for agreeing to come on. I've, I've enjoyed this conversation very much, and I think our listeners will as well. Thank you, David. Well, listeners, we've been talking to Dr. Wesley Hill about his book, Paul and the Trinity, Persons, Relations, and the Pauline Letters, published by Erdman's, which we will link in the show notes when they post on the blog. If you want to comment on this episode, leave a comment on the show notes when they post to the blog at christianhumanist.org, or send us an email at thechristianhumanist at gmail.com. I'm David Grubbs, host of this Christian Humanist Profiles interview. Christian Humanist Profiles is a show on the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. Be watching for the next Christian Humanist Profiles.